What we do here is go back, 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 back. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's, where I get a chance to sit down with fascinating folks from all walks of life to talk to them about where they are now, how they got there, and some of the challenges they've had to overcome along the way. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. So I am here. I am joined by Craig Ballantyne. Uh, he is the the author of The Perfect Day Formula. Um, he, I met him through our mutual friend, Jay Ferrugia, uh, luckily, because I feel really fortunate to have met him. Um, I was also fortunate enough about a week and a half ago to do one of Craig's Perfect Day workshops, which was amazing, uh, which we may or may not get into. I'm sure in some way we will throughout this conversation. Uh, welcome, Craig. Hey, how you doing? I'm great, man. Thank you for for joining me. Uh, I feel fortunate to have you here with me. And um, there, I have, as I always do, I have so many questions for you. And I assume we will only get to a fraction of them. And uh, whatever you say is going to be gold, I think. So wherever this goes, it goes. And um, I guess, you know, one thing that I thought of, because it's been on my mind with the launch of this podcast, it's come up a bunch in the first, I think only six episodes have been aired so far and language has come up. And this is kind of not maybe what you expected me to talk to you about, but you said something during the workshop that uh, struck me because you said it about two hours into the workshop that you hold yourself to a standard of being, I think you called it a British gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. Can you explain that to us? Uh, I like to be polite and courteous at all times, and I do not curse. And so I talk to people in elevators. I hold doors open. I do everything that you know a good person should, in my opinion, you know, a good man would do. And so I really want to live at that level. And so by telling people, you know, by telling people on this show, even um, you know, if anybody ever meets me in person, they're going to say, "Hey, you know, you didn't do that thing that you said you were going to do." you know, or you, you cursed, you know, you're a hypocrite. And then I would feel really bad. So I avoid that at all times. And I make sure that I live according to that principle. Right. That's, uh, it's pretty cool. And it actually makes me feel a little guilty because one of the things that came up was, um, when I launched this podcast, I was almost priding myself on the fact that, you know, this was my turf here and I could say whatever I wanted and I was going to throw out F-bombs whenever I wanted to and speak the way I wanted to. And um, my dad listened to a few of them, <laughs> which is funny. My, and my parents are so supportive. And he just said, you know, you might want to think about the language. I don't know. He's like, I know I'm older. I'm of a different generation, but, um, you know, it might turn some people off. And, you know, my response was kind of, more F-bombs and this is my turf and all this kind of thing. And then I started to listen back and I realized, particularly my, my episode with Kimmy Culp, which she was so articulate and so great, but I found myself cringing listening to how many times I used the word awesome, how many times I swore, and particularly in a medium that is all audio, I think we maybe owe it to ourselves to 
elevate the language and express ourselves a little more clearly. And I was impressed with you because you don't, you come off as, as kind of a, a smart guy, but, uh, not at all. Uh, like I was surprised to hear that cause you dropped that maybe two hours in and I was impressed with it. So I think I, I want to steal a little bit of that. Uh, I think the most important thing in communication, Matt, is not to be condescending. And that's just the most general rule. And then going back to the cursing. Now, let's be honest, a well-placed F-bomb can really have impact. Now, that said, if you then use a lot of them, it dilutes the impact. I still don't use any, but I know, I mean, I've been in a presentation, I've been at a seminar where someone uses one and, you know, it gets a lot of laughs. Um, but then again, you also have to think, well, what impact, you know, what, what is the real value? Am I really just chasing laughs from a bunch of bros in the audience or am I chasing actual impact for people to leave this presentation, this seminar, this speech, this scene in a movie? What am I chasing here? I mean, I don't know. Did Jack Nicholson swear in that uh, you can handle the truth? I don't know. Did he or did he not? You know, but I know JFK did not swear in, uh, you know, his let's go to the moon speech. I know that Martin Luther King didn't swear in his I have a dream speech. And if these guys cannot swear in those presentations, then by all means, listen, if you're trying to persuade somebody, you don't have to use an F-bomb to persuade somebody. That just means you're being lazy, I think, in most cases. And I'm, I'm very uncool for this um, idea. You know, most people, you know, especially like Bedros and Jay, who are good friends of ours, they, they go, oh, here he goes with the no swearing again. But you know what? Like you said, when you listen back, you go, who am I to use all these F-bombs? And, and where am I getting with this? What is the value? How does this serve me? And that's what I always am asking myself about every decision I make in life. How does this serve me? Is this the right decision for my right life right now? Do I want my kids to hear this? And the more you swear around other people, the harder it is for you to not curse around your children. And everybody is, who swears has you know, cursed in front of their children like, oh, I wish I didn't do that. It's because it's a habit. If your habit is you never swear then it's going to be so much easier for you to not to curse in front of your children. It's going to be so much easier if your habit is to always be polite to people, to always be polite when you're setting example for your children. So there's so much more to it than just not being the guy who curses. There's a lot of levels to it on habits in general, but also in how does this affect you in certain situations. And so I came up with this, Matt. The last thing I want to say on this, I came up with this plan when I was running intervals one day and I was thinking about what I could write to my audience at earlyderise.com where I write my daily essays and I thought, wait a minute, I'm such a hypocrite. You know, I tell these people to step out of their comfort zone. I still tell them to do all these things. And here I am, I curse like a sailor. You know, my dad like invented some curse words I'd never heard <laughs> anybody else say before. I mean, he was, you know, very foul enough. And, and I thought, you know what? I'm, I have never cursed in front of my mother. And I've never cursed on stage. So why can't I just not curse all the time? And through a bunch of techniques, I was able to stop cursing in about six days. Wow. Well, you, you just mentioned something with what are you chasing and going after the bros in the audience. That's kind of what I felt when I listened back um, was it was almost as though I was dumbing myself down 
to appeal to this kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm, I, I don't know. It, it seemed like I was, I was softening my language in a way and, and playing down as opposed to playing up and elevating it. And one thing, I, you know, we can let it go after this, but the, when you were saying that, that Jay and Pedro say like, oh, here he goes with the no swearing. That's what I was so impressed with was before you said it, I didn't realize that you weren't swearing. You just weren't. And so mm-hmm. when you said it, I was kind of shocked. I actually thought like, oh, this guy's totally cool. And, and he's doing that. I didn't even realize it. You know, yeah, it, you know, you, I don't think anybody realizes it. You know, I was out yesterday with some girl and we had a three hour conversation. I never swore once. She never said like, hey, you don't swear. Um, she just didn't notice it because it's really not that much of a deal either way in most cases. And so you don't have to actually say anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's great. Uh, so, okay. So here, here was one of the things, um, why don't you, why don't you tell, I could kind of give my version of what you do, but could you, uh, let us know a little bit of what you do or let the audience know a little bit of what you do right now. You came out of the fitness world. You completely, Sounds like I came out of the swamps. I came out of the fitness swamps. <laughs> no, but you, you <laughs> like kind the of thing with, the, you know, like with the, with the leaves draped over me. Yes, just, I emerged just jacked and with an eight pack. You came right, out of the I emerged swamps from the <laughs> emerged from the fitness swamps in um, in nineteen ninety nine. Actually, yeah. So I, I can give you a, a little spiel if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us a spiel. Okay, so I emerged from the fitness swamps and. In 98 is when I graduated with an undergraduate degree in exercise physiology. Then I got a master's degree in exercise physiology because you know what I wanted to be when I grew up, Matt, when I was uh, in college? Arnold? <laughs> I don't know. No, actually, um, that was more in high school. Um, yeah. I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach in the National Hockey League. Oh, yeah. Are you a hockey player? Were, were you? Uh, I'm a mediocre hockey player. I mean, I, I'm from a small town in Canada where everybody's a really good hockey player. Like our average, you know, it's like Lake Wobegon where everybody's above average at hockey. Yeah. So I went to college thinking, you know what, I can't play in the NHL. So I want to get there some other way. And I remember when I was in my final year of undergraduate, my strength, or not my strength, my graduate um, thesis, or sorry, my undergraduate thesis, do you know the strength and conditioning coach at Michigan State makes a hundred grand a year? And I thought that, like, if I could make a hundred grand a year as a strength coach, then, you know, my dreams would be, would be made. That'd be the greatest thing in the world. And so I started investigating the National Hockey League because I really wanted to be in the NHL. And so I, I got a master's degree because I learned that every co- uh, strength coach in the National Hockey League had a master's degree. Of course, every strength coach in the NHL was making $40,000 a year, but that's uh, beside the point. <laughs> so then I started, I got very lucky. I started writing an email newsletter and I sent one of them to the editor of Men's Health Magazine, the fitness editor. His name is Lou Schuler. He's a really great, interesting guy. And Lou put one of my articles in the magazine. There I was at 25 years old in Men's Health Magazine, the biggest fitness magazine in the world. And that gave me credibility above and beyond anything else. You know, it's like Leo doing, you know, what's he in Gilbert Grape and doing such a great job with that movie. You know, now he's got this credibility. Oh my gosh, this, you know, young actor is amazing. Right. And so I parlayed that credibility of Men's Health Magazine into building an online fitness business. And for people listening, who are like, what the heck is an online fitness business? You know, the best analogy is I had my own 
version of Beachbody in P90X. Essentially, it was, you know, I was the star of the workouts. I sold the workout videos. I did all of the the work from, you know, creating the advertisements to creating the products and everything. And so I did that for 11 years from 2000 to 2011. And then I bought another business called Early to Rise, which had been around since 2000 as well. And that one actually helps people not only improve their health, but improve their wealth and their relationships as well. So I bought that business in 2011. And if you actually go back into time, so I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. In 2006, I had crippling anxiety attacks and I needed to put a system in a place that would help me overcome those, but also be successful in life. And I did. And then I wrote about that in my book, The Perfect Day Formula, which came out in 2015. And then I got so much interest from coaching clients who had been working with in the business aspect of helping them use the Perfect Day Formula that I started doing workshops and one-on-one coaching. And also I'm doing a big event in November of 2017 in San Diego called the Perfect Life Retreat, which is where I help people. And that's what you went through is one of the workshops that uh, where I help people figure out the structure in their lives to get more done, to be more accomplished, to overcome their obstacles, to have greater success in their career faster than they thought possible, uh, to have clarity on the vision for their life, and then to put in place 90-day and 30-day action plans to really have that success. And so that's what they will come out of the day with when we do the workshop, and it's similar with the retreat, but it'll be in a larger group. Yeah, that's great. And and by the way, for anyone listening, so I happened to do this, uh, really feel fortunate to have done it. Um, I think it was a week and a half ago. And I couldn't believe, one, how intimate it was. And two, the the bare bones kind of um, punch list that I came out of it with. I, you know, I've, I've gone to different things before and I've gotten kind of... Um, pumped up by them and gotten all, uh, you know, ready to roll. And then sometimes, you know, you come out and you go, okay, let's go, let's go. And then you go, well, what am I, where am I going? What am I doing? Whereas with you, I feel like I came out and, you, you know, had a very specific list of things that I wanted to accomplish. Um, yeah. So, you know, what we do is if, if most people go to a seminar, they go and they take 20 pages of notes and then they leave. And on Monday morning, they're like, oh, I'm way too busy to get to these notes. And the next thing you know, it's four months later and they haven't actually even looked at their notes. And so they're being sent home and told to figure it out on their own when they get home. But when people come to any workshop or retreat that I do, we give you the 90 day and 30 day plan. So you don't have to go and figure that out. But we also have you plan out what you're going to do the next 24 hours, 72 hours and seven days so that you go home already in action mode. And you can actually take some, implement some steps on some of the things even in the workshop room. So we really get it done for you before sending you home to keep the momentum going as opposed to, hey, I'm going to vomit out a whole bunch of information you know, you clean up the uh, dog's breakfast here, you take it home, try and organize it into your life, and then figure out how to use it. That's any other seminar that people go to. But ours is a done for you. We're going to get you on the fast track. We're going to get the momentum going. We're going to show you exactly what to do so that 
when you leave here, you've already got something done, but you also know exactly what to do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of next week. You don't have to figure it out. That's, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I've done other ones. I've come out and I, I really have, yeah, 40 pages of notes. And they've, it's actually been helpful to go back and look at those over the months, but I had exactly what you just described where I didn't look at them for maybe more than two months. It was like four months or five months. Whereas yours, I came out and this past week, I got, <laughs> I can't even tell you how much I've gotten done since I worked with you. And it was all the stuff that we talked about. And, and um, one of the other things I want to mention is that, so Craig has this, he sends you an email with um, like five pages pre-workshop questions, which I thought, oh man, you know, like this is going to be general stuff. It's not going to apply to me. My days are very kind of mercurial because of what I do. You know, no day is the same. How am I going to answer these questions? And I, so I was afraid of that. And then I was also afraid that he was going to be such a hard charger because we're going to get into your kind of your plan of how you wake up so early and get everything done. I was a little worried, like, okay, here's this hard charger. He's a friend of a friend. I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to tell him my values and he's going to try to stuff his values down my throat. And it really was the opposite of that because I had a lot of things that were kind of my struggles are between balancing career and family. And you really kind of, I think I sent you the answers at 1230 at night and by 630 a.m. the following morning in my inbox, you had lasered into answers for each one of these questions or, or, or answers that I had put down there and had really specific suggestions of how to deal with them and really took me serious about being present with my kids and with my wife. And you, I feel like if the last week is any indication, you have made me or helped me, I can't say you've made me, but you've helped me be better in both areas, which before I would have said, that's not possible. Like you're going to, one's going to suffer if the other one does well. And I, I actually feel like you've managed to kind of line me up in a way that I'm a- accomplishing more in each area. Well, I would say this, Matt, is that I've worked with literally thousands of entrepreneurs, CEOs, professional athletes, um, and now with some actors like yourself and, and Jay Jablonski and a couple others. And so I know that everybody's life is different. And I am I'm not saying that my life is perfect for anybody else. I'm saying my life is perfect for me. And I don't want to try and put the square peg of, of Matt Del Negro into the round hole of somebody else's life. No, we don't try and do that. Instead, we accommodate the principles that are in my programs to somebody's life. And I have worked with people who are night owls and I have no problem with somebody being on a night owl schedule. If it is the right thing for their right life, remember going back, making the right decisions for your right life right now. So are you, you know, like that, my night owl friend, he runs a a hundred million dollar supplement company between the hours of 10 PM and 4 AM. He is biologically a night owl. He can't wake up in the morning. We've tried it over and over and over again. He's given himself so much stress and guilt, but he's designed his life to be super successful working those hours. And he is able to give his kids a bath and he just does all his work later at night after he's done that stuff, after he's read the story. 
and we just put the principles in place so that he is successful. And so that's what this is about. And that's why I was able to give you those answers so quickly, because I've seen all the obstacles that you threw at me. I know what, you know, you have to do if you have two kids and, you know, it's summertime. I've worked with people like that before over and over and over again. People with a ton of money, people with a ton of problems, people with physical handicaps, people with physical fitness levels that are above and beyond what I ever had. And, you know, all these demands and all these requirements and all these beliefs, you know, these mentally ingrained beliefs that people have. And I've worked with them and I know the ways to massage my principles into their life. Um, you know, when I was, I mentioned I was talking to that girl yesterday for three hours and, and I said that I'm, one of the things I'm, I am is a chameleon. You can put me, you can put me in a, you know, a very liberal audience. You can put me in front of a very conservative audience and I can, you know, I can sit there and have a conversation with somebody. I'm not going to, you know, fight or, you know, go against them on anything. I just want to hear what they're going to tell me and I'm going to learn from them. And and I can, you know, share some of their viewpoints. So that's the way that I am. And that helps me when I'm coaching people like yourself. Yeah, you could feel it in the room because we had a lot of different professions in the room. And yet there was a ton of uh, crossover in what our challenges and obstacles were. It didn't matter what profession you were in. It was It was kind of, it boiled down to just being human and realizing that we're all in our own way in some way. And I'll, I'll tell you what, you know, you really nailed it there. I have worked with people who run almost billion dollar companies. And, you know, one of the things I said at our workshop was most people have a lesser opinion of themselves than other people do. You know, most people struggle with self-confidence. Most people struggle with self-doubt. And what was the leader of that, you know, billion dollar company struggling with? Self-doubt. Yep. Because, you know, he had worked his way up from the bottom and he didn't have these degrees that, you know, the legal team had and the finance team had. And so when he would step on stage, sometimes he was like, oh, you know, I don't, am I the person that should be talking to these people? You know, you know, if the, what if my employees knew that, you know, I was, you know, I didn't have a, college degree or anything. And, you know, and, and, but he's so successful. And so we are almost always like that. I mean, I don't know too many people that don't have that, you know, la that little bit of self-doubt. Um, I think that if you didn't have any self-doubt, then you would probably have some psychological issues. And so I bet you, you know, even the greatest actors and, you know, the greatest athletes, they always have a little bit of self-doubt especially when they get outside of their areas, outside of their circle of competence, as Warren Buffett would say. So everybody does have the same problems. And that's why I'm able to translate those answers that I have across so many avenues in life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny as a, as a actors, I think one of the phrases I've heard teachers say, and I say it when I teach classes is there's this uh, tendency with actors, particularly, well, not every young actor, but a lot of times with young actors or inexperienced or even with seasoned veterans, where there's a tendency to overact. And what it is, uh, I believe, is an overcompensation for the fear that we are not enough. That if I'm in a close-up 
And all I have to do is listen to you. All I have to do is listen to you. I have to be relaxed. I have to take in what you're saying and let it hit me. I don't need to do tricks. I don't need to do facial tics. And yet so many of us, myself included, you know, I can go back and watch performances and cringe. Um, but so many of us do too much. And I think it comes from that same thing you're talking about, which is a fear of not being enough, of not feeling like here I am just as I am and take it or leave it. And uh, it, it can it can really hang people up. You know, it makes me think that, you know, people need to set aside their ego. Um, my friend Ryan Holiday has a book called Ego is the Enemy, and it really truly is the enemy for a lot of people. But when you set aside your ego, and I'm sure everybody listening has had, you know, a time in their life when they were just like, ah, screw it. I do not care about, uh, you know, maybe for some reason they were just like, oh, I just had the worst week. I don't care what's going to happen, you know, in this presentation. I just want to get through it. I'm just going to go in and I'm just going to be myself and I don't care. And then, and you know, that was when, oh my gosh, you know, you know, I sold a whole bunch of people or I had my best performance on stage. And it was like, you know, I wish I was, you know, more relaxed like this more of the time. And it's because, you know, most people are always thinking, what's that other person thinking of me right now? Um, when most people are on stage, they're all, all they can think about is how nervous they are. But the people in the audience, nobody, at least I've never been to a presentation where I was like, I wonder how nervous that person is right now. Nobody's right. thinking about that. They're, they're sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, this person is on stage. That means that they are an expert and I need to focus on taking notes from this person. So, I mean, it's amazing human perception. You know, human perception is this thing that can trick us into so many problems, you know, and the wisest people, you know, those people who you look at and you say, oh, that person is so Zen. It's because they figured it out. They figured out that nobody really cares about how I look or what I'm doing right now because all they care about is themselves. They're so worried about, oh, am I wearing the right thing that, you know, no one would actually notice what I'm wearing. I could probably wear the same outfit three days in a row and no one would remember and no one would call me on it. It's just yeah. like if you've ever seen, there's this really one famous scientific experiment where they... They show this old basketball dribbling video and they have to count how many times people dribble the ball or something and a gorilla walks through the background and nobody notices that there's a gorilla walking through the background because they're so focused on counting the basketball dribbles. But if you just watched and weren't counting the basketball dribbles, it's like you could not miss the guy in the gorilla suit and yet people did miss it because of the perception. And I mean, oh my goodness, the mind is an amazing thing. And psychology is, is something I love. And it was one of my favorite uh, courses in, in college. And it's just amazing because it probably is one of the most applicable courses I've ever taken in my life behind, yeah. behind high, uh, grade 10 keyboarding, which was actually the most valuable class I'd ever taken in my life because of what it's allowed me to do. So funny that you're saying that. First of all, I read that book. Uh, that's the MIT study about the white gorilla. And it's fascinating, not only that, but all the other things in that book. I, I can't remember the name. It might even be called like the uh, the white gorilla. I, I forget the name of the book, but fascinating how they talk about the perception of confidence. They talk about doctors who actually consult books. That's more accurate. 
And yet a patient that sees a doctor consulting a book thinks, oh, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and the, and the, the doctor who, who gives the perception of confidence and just says what they should do, that's actually not quite as accurate. But there, that book is, is fascinating. Um, and then the other thing is, you just said about keyboarding. Yeah, in high school, I took keyboarding uh, with uh, Mrs. Regan, Diana Regan. And I hated, I told her this since then because my mom taught at my high school. I hated it at the time. It would be A-S-D-F-J-K-L-Sema. And I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. And then that has opened up such a world for me because <laughs> right. you know, I Who do so much thought, writing huh? now. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing you mentioned that. So here's, a, here's something I wanted to come up with. Um, one of the things that struck me during the workshop, you know, you're, you're very confident, you're very articulate. And yet, uh, your style of teaching is, I loved it. You were very honest and vulnerable and admitted to your faults. There's nothing worse to me than someone who gets up and, and pretends that they've got all of the answers. And you actually, I feel like, do have more answers than most people I come across. And yet, you taught in a way that was very... Um, it wasn't false self-deprecation, but it was very honest. And you talked about, you know, this is called 10,000 no's. So it's all about overcoming obstacles and setbacks. And one of the things you mentioned earlier, and you mentioned it at the workshop was these crippling anxiety attacks. I would love for you to kind of go into that a little bit so people can hear what you went through and how you kind of morphed your business and your life. Yeah. So going back to, you know, the workshop and sharing this stuff, I, a really great phrase for this is disclosure is disarming. Disclosure is disarming. And so if you think about the most famous and influential woman in entertainment, who is it? Uh, Oprah. Oprah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oprah. Yeah. What has she shown that her life has been? A train wreck. She has shown and been open and honest about every train wreck she's had in life. Um, you know, that, you know, she couldn't have done anything when she was young, you know, when she was 14 and was raped by those people. But she has shared that story. She has shared and disclosed and it has disarmed so many people and they gravitate towards her and they say, oh, my goodness, you can understand my pain. You can lead me out of this pain. Now, if you just go, like when I was a child, I had to go to church and I had to listen to this old man who was rough and angry and he pontificated and, you know, he would probably never admit to a sin. Well, what am I going to think of that? What am I going to think of this guy? I'm going to think that this guy is an old blowhard who is not going to understand me. I'm never going to take my personal problems to this person. But mm -hmm. if you then say, hey, I'm going to slice the belly open here. You're going to see my wounds and you know what you're going to, because you see my wounds, you're going to understand that I can relate to yours. And that is so important in every aspect of persuasion. And I mean, you can call it selling, marketing, persuasion, whatever you want, because that's what I'm doing at the end of that day in the coaching sessions. I'm persuading you to believe in my systems, to believe in yourself and to leave that day believing that you have the right path in place. And I, as I mentioned at the workshop, I was put here on this earth with my flaws, which are very many, very, very many. And I've been trying to figure them out. 
And I want to share with you like, hey, here's what's worked for me to overcome the anxiety, to overcome the drinking, to overcome the swearing, to overcome the envy that I have in my heart. And you know what? I really don't care if you think I'm a loser. I really don't because, <laughs> there, you know, I've got, I've got from the fitness industry back when I was in the fitness swamp, uh, as the swamp thing, <laughs> you know, there's actual websites devoted to calling me names that I can't say because I do not swear because I had a very controversial stance that, you know, doing cardio and running and being on an elliptical machine is really a stupid waste of time, which it is. And so people who love running and jogging and cardio got very angry with me. And I realized, you know what, there's somebody out there that I've never met before who hates me. And not only that, but right now, somebody's talking behind your back. Everybody who's listening, somebody is gossiping behind your back. And you know what, they'll never say it to your face. And so, you know what, who cares? Who cares? And so knowing all that stuff, Matt, I was able to say, who cares? And I also know that the more disclosure I have, the more impact I can have on other people. You know, if you called this, uh, you know, the perfect way to be totally awesome and never have a fault in Hollywood, you know, I don't know how many people would actually listen to your show after a couple of shows. But if you're going to call it 10,000 no's and talk about, hey, listen, man, you want to see how uh, the real world works here in, in uh Hollywood in the world, you know, you're going to get 10,000 no's and you're going to struggle and you're going to have down days. And you know what? You are going to win because after 10,000 no's, you get a yes. And so that's what it's all about. So going back to my anxiety is in 2006, I was stupid. I was a stupid young man and there should be no sympathy for me in, <laughs> in the fact that I got anxiety from drinking and partying and spending all the money that I was making being a fitness expert because I was being a hypocrite. But I was so successful in my online business that I had, I suffered from what I call the paradox of freedom. Much like Johnny Depp suffers from the paradox of freedom. There's nobody around him saying, no, no, you can't spend $30,000 a month on wine, Johnny. No, you can't uh, spend a million dollars on Hunter S. Thompson's funeral, Johnny. And it's the same with Mike Tyson. No, you can't buy the tiger, Mike. And you know, the next thing you know, your $300 million uh, of your fight earnings are gone and you're broke. And so I had the paradox of freedom with nobody saying, no, you can't do that, Craig. And I worked too much and I partied too much and I ended up with anxiety. So it's not like anyone should feel sorry for me. I don't feel sorry for myself. But what I did is then I realized, okay, this sucks. And I had the lowest point in my life. I had to ask a personal training client to take me to the emergency room. And he was five foot three, 310 pounds, obese lawyer, stressed out. And I'd ask him to take me a healthy, fit 30-year-old to the emergency room. And I, he, we never had the same relationship after because he still couldn't understand. And I call anxiety a black box because you, as the person going through it, can't understand it. And the other person who you're trying to explain it to it can't understand it. So that's why there's going to be a black box on the cover of my next book, which is Overcoming Anxiety. And so then, yeah, so I went to the emergency room and they said, you know, there's nothing physically wrong with you. They did some tests on me. And then I, you know, took up meditation, yoga, Qigong, all of these things. And they helped me learn how to breathe properly, which is something that I didn't know how to do, which was, you know, I thought it was a professional breather. And here I was not breathing properly um, <laughs> at the age of 30, hadn't figured it out yet. And so I did all these things and eventually I overcame the anxiety. And whenever I tell that story, I get all these people who tell me, you know, like one guy told me, yeah, they, they called the emergency team in the, in the airport because he couldn't board a plane and he was thankful for me sharing my story. And I get text messages and Facebook messages from people in the emergency room saying, Craig, 
I don't know what's going on, but I know you went through anxiety. Can you help me through this? And so if I didn't share this story, I wouldn't be helping people. And if somebody didn't share their story back in 2006, it wouldn't have helped me because I actually bought a book called Panic Away that helped me overcome my anxiety attacks. And if somebody didn't share their story in that book, I wouldn't have found it and I might not have overcome the anxiety attacks. And so you have to do this. That's why people who go and write articles about how they overcome, how they overcame, you know, depression after being divorced. I mean, that's so important. You have to share that story because for every person who shares that story, there's 10 million people out there who need that help. And so it's so important. And that's why you have to slice open your belly, spill your guts, open the kimono, whatever cliche you want to use, you need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I told you when we met that you were catching me at an interesting time in my life because of this podcast and because of the speech that I told you about and uh, some things that I'm kind of, I've been putting into place for the last six months or so um, where that's kind of the turn I've been trying to make, which is being more vulnerable. I feel like I am in my personal relationships. If you ask my family or my friends, I'm pretty open and honest, but I don't know in public how much I, I feel like I'm almost like, you know, a poker player. And so this, the whole point of this podcast is really that, which is to say like, yeah, I, I certainly don't have the answers and I'm going to go talk to all these people that I think are truly impressive. And my suspicion is that they may say, they don't have the answers either. Uh, they may have some, but you know, th- there's a humility to everyone that I've had on this show has been, you, you know, it's, it's such a, an interesting uh, contradiction because they're so, just like all the people in your, at your workshop that day, they're, they're really, uh, you know, successful, impressive people that are making an impact on the world. And yet all of them are so humble and grateful and articulate and and willing to share some not so perfect facts about themselves. And so it is really a common bond. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. Well, well, don't worry. I actually do have all the answers. <laughs> you do. You do. Yes. Yes. And, well, and you know, for fourteen ninety nine, you can find out what those are. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a couple of things that you mentioned there. You mentioned accountability and you mentioned you know, sharing with other people. And, and a lot of people listening to this right now are going, who the heck do I share this stuff with? I mean, if I share this stuff with my brother-in-law, he's going to tease me. He's going to make fun of me. If I share this stuff with, you know, Nancy in the office, she's going to spread these rumors. And it's, you know, it's a valid concern. You do not want to share things with negative Nancy's, with crabs, with, you know, people call it, you know, crabs in the bucket, the people that try and pull you back down. You don't want to share this. And for our Australian friends, you don't want to share this with anybody who is going to, uh, you know, take advantage of the tall poppy syndrome and cut you down because I know that's what they call it down there. And so you don't want to share your vulnerabilities with people who are only going to make things worse. And so you have to take baby steps in sharing. So, you, you know, you figure out, okay, you know, that guy, George, he's a pretty positive guy. He's told me some things, you know, he's disclosed some things. So it's, you know, it's disarming. I can trust him. I feel like he's the kind of guy who, who would be okay if he, if I shared like, you know, this kind of awkward situation I'm in right now with, you know, my girlfriend or something. And, and you know, maybe he can give me some advice. You know, I share a little bit of stuff, you know, take some baby steps with them. You know, it's a good positive response from George. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe I can share a little bit more with them next time. And then you go and you build trust. 
And if you, you know, if, if I feel like I got the cold shoulder from George, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to tell him anything more. And I'm, you know, I'm, that, that experiment didn't work out. So that's how I recommend people start finding other positive people. If they, if they feel like they're stuck in a world where they're surrounded by nothing but bad people and who are all going to give them a hard time, you really just need to try and find that one person and do the little baby steps. And then the other thing with the accountability is, you know, you said you got a poker face on in the public. Well, I would say this goes back to the swearing that we talked about before. There's certain things that are helpful to share in a public setting where you, when you want to act in a way in, you know, you want to have a public persona or you want to just have better habits and you share with the world, Hey, I'm, I'm never going to hit snooze again. I'm going to get up at six o'clock every morning and never hit snooze. And I'm going to put that on my Facebook page. I'm going to put that in my podcast. I'm going to put that everywhere. And I want people to hold it to me. I want people to be asking me about it every day so that if I didn't, I feel like a hypocrite and I, you know, I man up and I, I wake up on time the next day. So there's some things like that where it's not, you know, that's really not personal. That's not, um, you know, you're really not going to feel a lot of shame about it if, you know, everybody in the world knew about it. Uh, so that's a good place to start getting the public accountability. So I just wanted to share those two things because people hear me talking about sharing and public accountability and all this stuff. And, and they're not at my point in life where I'm willing to throw everything on the table. And so for people that are just looking to take the first steps, I hope that those two tips have been helpful. Yeah, I've found, um, I know I know you're not a, a parent yet, but you would like to do that. Um, I've found being a parent has, in a lot of ways, uh, rips the facade down. You know, you can, you, in, a, in a certain way, there's just like when you're, some of the things that you're doing as a parent and you're, you're kind of, I, I don't know, there's, it seems like, I don't know if it's just age, it's being a parent or, or maybe it's, you know, uh, a certain place in your career where you talk about these 10,000 no's, you've just been, you've been knocked down so many times that you're kind of like, yeah, this is, this is the deal. It's almost, uh, for me, it feels as though, um, I've just, I'm more, um, I'm less in denial about what is and about what my life is than I used to be. And well, I would say, I would say this, Matt, that uh, poop is a equalizer. So every, <laughs> every person who is a parent, so Gwyneth Paltrow has gotten poop on her hands. Her child's poop has been on her hands at some point in her life, because that's what happens when you are a parent. There's poop on your hands eventually. And it's the same as a dog owner. You know, Jessica Biel might have a dog and she might be, you know, one of the hottest women in the world, but she has put her hand into a paper or a plastic bag and picked up dog poop. And so she's just a human like I am. And so if she picks up dog poop and Gwyneth Paltrow has poop on her hands, hey, listen, we're all human and we all have that self-doubt thing and nobody's better than me. And that will help everybody listening to go and have really great, positive, confident conversations, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, let, let me ask you this. When you went through the, the anxiety attacks, were, was there ever a point when you thought, I'm done, I'm quitting, I can't, I can't handle this, I'm giving up the business? I'm, what, did it ever get that bad? Or did oh. these spells kind of like pass quickly? 
Oh, no, no. I mean, I basically had an anxiety attack for six weeks straight, 24 hours a day. I could sleep from 11 p.m. till 3 a.m. It felt like I was like having a heart attack every single waking moment for those six weeks. Oh, my Not, God. No exaggeration, no hyperbole, nothing. Um, during that time, I never thought of giving up a business. I mean, I actually, I've never even thought of thinking about giving up the business. It was, that was, you know, I even went and worked out. I had crappy workouts, but um, I never thought of that. I never thought of, I never, you know, let's, you know, to think of like the worst case, I never thought of killing myself. What I thought of was one day I thought, okay, I'm just going to let this thing like rip it open. I'm just going to let it get as bad as it can get. And I tried to make the anxiety attack worse. And here's the irony. When I tried to make the anxiety attack worse, it actually made it better, which was really bizarre. Now, it's not something I recommend somebody do, uh, especially in case they're not having an anxiety attack and they are having an heart attack. Um, you know, the first thing that people need to do if they're having anxiety attack or, you know, think they're having a heart attack is definitely go to the doctor. But for me, Matt, when I tried that that one day, when I, I mean, that was like my give in moment. And when I tried that, it kind of made it better. Now, it didn't stay better for much longer, but it was weird how that one moment just made me, it, it definitely made me realize it's, there's something about it all being in my head here. And I am a bit of a hypochondriac, I think. So interesting question, but that was how I responded to, to that thing when I was like, oh, man, I, I have tried everything. At least I felt like it. Yeah. And then what, and then what, aside from, you know, meditation and breathing, but did, did you feel like one thing I keep coming on uh, to lately is that gratitude for where I am right now, who's around me right now, what I have going on right now. If I have gratitude for that, that seems to be the key to it all. Did you find that? I mean, I know you were doing breathing techniques, which may have relaxed you enough to feel that, but what is your stance on gratitude and where was it? Do you think that you had a lack of gratitude that kind of brought on that anxiety at that time? I don't think the lack of gratitude brought it on. I think that, you know, adding gratitude to my day certainly has helped me ward it off. Um, I didn't use gratitude at that time. What I did use at that time or what I actually have ended up writing about in my new book is that there are three different ways to overcome the anxiety. There's going to be physical aspects to it. So nutrition, movement, sleep, and breathing. That's our first section of the book. The second section of the book is all about getting out of your own head and giving and being generous and having gratitude. So it is something that's very, very important to people that are struggling with anxiety because most people's anxiety is brought on by the hamster in their wheel brain, you know, spinning way too fast. And it's because they're overthinking things. Um, they're comparing themselves to others. They got a million things going on in their life. But you know what? If you went down to the homeless shelter and, you know, doled out some uh, soup, you would probably not have anxiety. You would uh, have a little bit of natural gratitude. And because you are getting outside of your own head and you are serving other people's problems, you would probably have a, a great relief in your anxiety. So what the, the worst thing a person who has anxiety can do is hole up on their own and not tell anybody about it and just think about it all day long. That's the worst thing you can do. Getting inside of your head where the problem is, you're just going into the box, you're locking the door, 
and you're, you know, the hamster's spinning around faster in the wheel inside your head and it's just worse and worse and worse and worse. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? And, you know, maybe if it's a heart attack and all these things. So what you need to do is get out, get outside of your own mind, get outside of yourself, give, think about others, whatever you can do, just get outside of yourself. And so, yeah, gratitude is really important. I didn't know anything about gratitude in 2006. I mean, as stupid as it sounds, I didn't think of it. I didn't know of, you know, using it as a practice. And it wasn't until about 2009 that I made it a daily practice. Yeah. Well, you know, I was actually thinking, uh, I wanted to ask you, how did that whole uh, episode morph your business? But I think I might know at least some of the answer, which is you talked about it at the workshop. To me, you seem... You know, I don't know you well yet, but you seem very. You spent nine hours with me where I told yeah, you everything in my entire life. I mean, I do you know, know you pretty well. You know me better than ninety-nine percent of the people I've ever met. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, but I, I guess I was going to say I don't know you for so long. Right. But, but um, but what I, you know, the essence that you gave off was someone who is extremely compassionate. Your entire mission in life is to help people, and yet one of the very first things you said was you felt like you used to be, you compared yourself to Bedros, who is really just a warm guy. I'm going to have him on the show soon. And I, I can't wait because he's got such an amazing story. He's such a warm guy. And you kind of said, um, you know, you were doing seminars with him and you, you said you felt like you were so cold compared to him. And I thought, wow, you don't seem cold at all. Is that something that kind of changed as a result of this getting knocked down where, where you, you lost like maybe a cockiness that you had? No, not at all. It was, uh, I changed because I hung around him and I changed because he was disappointed in me when I didn't, um, act the way he did when I was cold, when I was rude, when I was blunt, when I was a jerk to people. And so, you know, that's the power of accountability. And so I wanted to change. And, and when I didn't perform up to the level that he knew I could when I wasn't polite, he would look at me and, you know, if you've ever had your father or your brother or your best friend look at you disappointed, you know, that's like one of the worst feelings you can have. And every time I screwed up, he would look at me like that and he would say, you can't do that. Come on. What are you doing? You can't do that. And he's California cool. That's the way I describe him. And I just learned over time how to be you know, nicer and be polite and be courteous and be patient with people. I'm also a very impatient person in general. And that's, you know, doesn't help with the rudeness and the anxiety. And on the flip side, when I met him, he was reactive. He, in his business methods, he was struggling with anxiety. He was not making decisions properly. He was sleeping in um, and he'd show up at breakfast. You know, he just got up five minutes before I'd been up for three hours working he would go home from the dinners we would have at night and I would go and relax, relax and he would go back and work till two o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, always stressed under the deadlines. And he looked at me and he said, wow, this guy's really got his act together here. I need to change my habits. And so he changed his habits to become more productive and successful. And I changed my personality to be more patient and understanding and polite and courteous. And together, we both improved ourselves dramatically through association, which is okay. the power of the old Jim Rohn quote, which is you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Before that, I was spending time with people 
who, you know, who are actually nice people, but who would laugh at my sarcastic and, you know, cynical and acidic comments. And that encouraged me to be more sarcastic, cynical, and acidic. Um, but then when I started hanging around a guy who, who could laugh at different jokes and who was polite and courteous and calm and cool and collected, then I became more like him. Hmm. That's really interesting. I can't even imagine him not being, <laughs> I, you know, I've met him in the recent years and, and I can't even imagine uh, him in that way. So it's, it's, and I can't imagine you in that cold way. So it's kind of interesting to see that you really can, you can change your baseline. Oh yeah, totally. Um, and you, you know, this is how people end up in, in, this is my total, uh, no science-based scientific or, uh, belief uh, psychology report here on how people end up in weird subcultures. So I like to use the female bodybuilder analogy. Have I told you this one yet? No, no. Okay. So, so what 12 year old girl wakes up one day and thinks, Hey, I want to be a female bodybuilder that looks like a man. Like none, right? Like, okay. But here's what happens. 12 year old girl becomes 20 year old girl. Um, who got dumped by a boyfriend and she's suffering from a bit of self-confidence and someone says, Hey, you should go join the gym. She go work out. She goes and she works out and she starts getting a little positive feedback from some of the guys in the gym after she loses five pounds. And, you know, and then all of a sudden some guy says, Hey, maybe you should do a chin up. You know, you should put these in your workouts and she does a chin up and you know, that guy says, Oh wow, cool. You're getting stronger. And the next thing you know, she's dating this guy and he's saying, you know, he's got her on like some CrossFit workout and you know, she's gained a little bit of muscle and, you know, she breaks up with this guy and goes out with a guy who's got more muscle and he's, he's going, oh, wow, you know, you should really like, um, you know, maybe try these, uh, you know, this testosterone, you know, add a little bit more strength and you'll win like competition. And she does that. And the next thing you know, slippery slope, she's being rewarded. It's just like training a dog. You know, every, you know, you're supposed to reward your dog for doing the right thing, not yell at it for doing the wrong thing in order to make it behave in a certain way. And this is, you know, every time this girl goes in and works out and gains muscle, she's getting more compliments, more compliments, she gains more muscle. And the next thing you know, five years later, she looks, you know, more manly than you and I, and she's on stage in female bodybuilding shows. This is my theory. This is, you know, again, not proven by science, but this is how I believe everybody gets in these weird subcultures because they're in a place where they're looking for, you know, they're lost and they're looking to plug into something. And it might be female bodybuilding. It might be, you know, goth punk music. It, you know, it might even be, you know, terrorism. And that's how these, you know, they're just lost souls and they get sucked in to these subcultures because those are the people that are rewarding them. And if somebody else who is a positive person comes along and says, hey, check out this personal development book, read this, you know, become a better person. And they get rewarded for that. They're going to go down that path in life. So that's, again, that's how I think that most people can change. It's all through being rewarded for it. If you are not rewarded for it, you'll say, oh, why did I do all that work? I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to read these personal development books because nobody actually says, hey, you're doing a better job. You're improving. You're changing. I ended up changing because I loved it when people said, hey, thanks. And, you know, I really appreciate, uh, you know, the kind words. You really helped me. I wanted more of that, not, hey, Craig, you know, stop being a jerk. And yeah. so I, I changed because the reward to me was really valuable. And I, and I was like, oh, I want to go and get more of that approval. Yeah, which is interesting. I've heard that theory with uh, when people are trying to break a habit that they consider a bad habit, but they feel helpless uh, in, in trying to quit it. 
um, that 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 is a necessary step is to replace it with, you know, a more rewarding habit. That's you can't just get rid of the one bad habit and have a vacuum because it's not going to work or it's not going to last or be sustainable. But if you can replace it with something else that, you know, that is the way to overcome it. Absolutely. Um, Now, what do you, what about instinct? How does instinct, because you're a very learned man, you're, you're well-read, you write all the time, you've written articles for major magazines, you've written several books, you've written eBooks. so you're, you're very, uh, you know, you're very, very much a, a product of your work ethic, but you also seem to be governed by instinct. What, wh- how do you see that in your business and in your personal life instinct? I think that instinct comes from experience. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a gut feeling. It's like the best analogy I have is Warren Buffett says, <laughs> To, to other people on the outside, what he does looks risky, but to him, it's not risky at all to, to you know, to buy craft for $28 billion because this man has studied financial reports for 70 years of his life and he knows how numbers work and to go and put $28 billion into a company is no different than you saying, hey, you know what, let's take the kids to the pizza place this weekend because I know they'll like it. You know, he knows what's going to happen. Right. And so, so it's the same thing. It's like a good instinct really comes from experience, I think. And so maybe that's what you're seeing in me is more, hey, this guy's worked with just so many people that he knows how things are going to work. And it's the same with, you know, in business and one of my coaching clients who I worked with last week, he said, you know, I can, I can tell in 20 seconds by looking at the numbers in one of our bids, if we're going to get it, if I need to adjust anything, because I've been doing this for 20 years and I just know the numbers inside and out. So that's how I look at that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree because I, I found, um, through teaching, ironically, I've, I've found, well, one thing is that I've, I've found that I learn so much when I teach because you remember some things that you maybe haven't thought of in particularly the way that you're framing them for the students. But I've also, you know, it's also a nice way to check in and go, oh, wow, I've really, I've been doing this for a long time. And there are certain things that maybe now I think are instinctual, but they are not just instinctual. They are learned over years and years and decades and decades of experience of doing you know, being involved in great projects, not so great projects, um, failing, bombing, whatever you want to call it. And, and kind of you, it's like you're logging all this information of what worked and what didn't work. And you don't necessarily have to consciously think of all of the steps anymore. Um, but on some level you are going through these steps. It's just more of a rapid fire because you've done it so many times and maybe it comes off to someone who's, who's, less experienced that, oh, you're just all instinct. But but it, it did come from a combo of instinct and experience. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the bottom line is you just have to get really good at what you're trying to be good at. Yeah. Yeah. And um so I, I would I would ask you what is, I have an opinion on this for you, but what would you say is the 
whether it's God given or it's through experience, the, the, the quality about you that makes you so good at what you do. You, you've kind of semi answered it already. I think there's one thing in particular that comes to mind that just seems like a natural part of you that makes you so good at what you do. What, what do you think for you? Well, I'm always looking for constant, never ending improvement in myself. And I see that it is possible. And I want other people to see how simple it is. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's like climbing a hill, a very steep hill is simple. You just put one foot in front of the other. It's not easy, but it's simple. And that's the way that I've always looked at everything from when I was in the fitness swamp, you know, weight loss and exercise, you know, you want to run a marathon or you want to bench press 300 pounds, the, the process there is simple. And so I wanted to show that to other people. And that's always driven me to help other people to make these transformations for them to, instead of feeling bad about themselves, to feel good about themselves because everybody can make the changes that they, they want to. They just maybe don't believe that they can. Yeah. That that's kind of I was going to say it in different words, but I was going to say you have a that is what it is. I was going to say you have a certain speed and clarity that I don't see in. I've seen it in some people, but I don't see it that often. You really hone in on the most important thing. That was the biggest thing I got from you. Well, I would say I would say that that's a blessing and a curse, and that the reason why I am like that is because I spend so much time in introspection and self-reflection. You know, I I spend a lot of time inside of my own head, whereas most people don't, they don't do the self-reflection. They don't do the introspection. They, they would rather do anything else in the world aside from, you know, think in silence for five minutes. Now the problem is, is that's what, you know, when you overthink things, you end up with anxiety and envy. So it's a blessing and a curse, but it is true that, that I think about things a lot more than most other people. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but you also seem to have a clear, cause I think a lot as well. I, I, I'm a real thinker to a fault. And what I got from you was actually, yeah, you're a thinker, but you are, you're a man of action as well. I feel like you've taken at least my experience of you and your workshop was that you took all of my thoughts that were kind of jumbled in my head and you, and you gave me a funnel through which I could pour them and, and shoot them out in a more laser like fashion. So they're actually getting me somewhere. Whereas before that, they feel like they're just, they're just swimming around in my head, kind of slowing me down. Yeah. So that's, that's why I use that phrase chess master. You know, that's how I see myself as I'm the chess master and in your game of life, I can move you on the board because I, I see moves ahead. I know where you should be going. I just need some general information where you are now, what you wanted, what you generally want to do with your life. Um, you know, what you want to do in the past, you know, what your struggles are. And then it's like, Oh, okay. I've seen this before. Here's exactly how to move you on the board to get you faster results. And it's a matter, you know, it's a combination of that instinct and introspection that just makes me pretty darn good at what I do. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're very good at what you do. Um, I'm not going to keep you. I know you're, <laughs> you, you are a man of action. You got a lot going on. Um, so uh, I will let us wrap it up. But just could you tell everyone who's listening where they could find you, what books you have coming out, what books are out there already, anything you want to tell anyone about, about yourself and where they can find your work? Yeah, I'd really appreciate that. So I am having a big event that I'd love to see everyone at. It's called Perfect Life Retreat. 
And it's perfectliferetreat.com. It's November 9th and 10th in San Diego. It's an introduction to the workshop that Matt went through, which is a very small group event of just five or six people. And it really just, you know, goes and takes all the clutter in your head and gets you total mental clarity about, okay, here's where I want to get to. I call it your dream destination in life and gives you the straight line to success of here's what you're going to do in the next 30 days, 90 days and really give you the results that you want and that complete clarity so that you avoid all the detours in life, which most people struggle with. And then people can read my daily essays at earlytorise.com, which is wisdom on productivity, wealth building, health building, all that uh, great stuff and relationship building. And then find me on social media. My favorite one is instagram.com forward slash real Craig Valentine. I don't think I'm following you. I got to, I got to follow uh, you when we get off yeah. the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you probably follow the fake Craig Valentine. <laughs> I'm going to go find the real Craig Valentine. Yes. Yes. Um, hey, listen, man, thank you so much for uh, gracing me with your presence and your wisdom. Uh, I, I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you down there in San Diego in November. And I will speak. Cause to you you're going to be on them. stage speaking. I am. I didn't know if I was supposed to uh, bring that up here. Yeah, you got to tell your fans for sure. Oh, they yeah. got to see you in action. Yeah, this is going to be, uh, I'm, I'm giving a, uh, a speech basically on the same theme as this podcast, 10,000 no's on, uh, on perseverance, adaptability, and reinvention. So I am, uh, I am excited and in full disclosure, I am also scared. Uh, I can't swear anymore in front of this British gentleman, but scared right. crapless. Can I say that? <laughs> but I'm I'm super excited and I, I'm really grateful for that opportunity. I'm I'm going to uh, have fun with that. Yes, so thank we all you. are. Yeah, thank you for for that and thanks for for being here. Thank you so much. All right, brother. Bye.